2: Hi, I'm Sharon Salzberg, and I'm speaking today with Rick Hansen, PhD. Rick is a psychologist, senior fellow of the Greater Good Science Center at UC Berkeley, and New York Times bestselling author. His work focuses on the inner skills of personal well-being, psychological growth, and contemplative practice, as well as about relationships, family life, and raising children. Rick has been a trustee of Saybrook University, served on the board of Spirit Rock Meditation Center, and was president of the board of Family Works, a community agency. He is the author of many books, the latest of which is just released in May of 2020, entitled Neurodharma, New Science, Ancient Wisdom, and Seven Practices of the Highest Happiness. He's also a good friend of mine. I think we last saw each other in Scotland. (laughs) Welcome to the (laughs) Hour, Rick.
1: Thank you. And
2: is that right, Scotland?
1: <laughs> that is true. That is really true.
2: Well, it seems like a dreamscape away. I mean, really. Uh-huh,
1: that's right. Yeah. If I recall, you weren't feeling that well done. So Probably I hope not. You're doing better. <laughs>
2: uh, I'm much better now. Thank you. That's um, good. So, Neurodharma, seven practices of the highest happiness. Dare I ask you what? Seven practices uh, can be encapsulated as?
1: Yeah. Well, first, let me say, I'm, I noticed that I feel almost embarrassed bringing up these topics with you, who I <laughs> esteem so, honestly so highly as someone who's practiced so deeply with the greatest teachers. So uh, just starting with that, kind of acknowledging that. Well, all thank I've you. tried to do, yeah, all I've tried to do in the book. In in a way, I'm going to use you as an example, and if you squirm a little, ha ha! You know my methods are working. But in a sense, I ask myself, okay, how does Sharon do it? Mm-hmm. How do you abide in, let's say, the qualities of com- of compassion and loving kindness that you're so well known for, and then sort of work backwards from there, uh, informed by the growing understanding of what's happening in the body mm-hmm. when a person is for example, really rested in and has cultivated traits of compassion, kindness, uh, and love, right? And then how can we use that understanding of what's actually happening in the body? What's the bodily basis of that quality? And then use that understanding to develop more and more of that quality ourselves. So that's the general approach, and when I, this book for me is really quite a culmination. I've been meditating since 1974, in my own way, sort of, you know, I've been at it, and I see in people who are really far along in practice the perfection, if you will, of these seven qualities of steadiness, lovingness, fullness, which is a way of talking about um, equanimity and well-being together, contentment, in a word, so... Steadiness, lovingness, and fullness—you see those really developed. Also, you see qualities of wholeness, self-acceptance, being feeling whole themselves, nowness, really resting in the present moment—the uh, uh, you know the emerging edge of now—with a sense of allness, interdependence, interbeing, as Thich Nhat Hanh puts it, opening out into everything, wholeness, nowness, and allness—the fourth, fifth, and sixth qualities or ways of being that we can develop as practices. And then last, timelessness, um, Mm -hmm. in which I explore what could that fundamentally important word routinely translated as unconditioned Mm -hmm. actually mean, both within ordinary Big Bang universe and potentially in terms of what may be meaningfully transcendentally distinct uh, from the conditioned flow of time, thus timelessness. So those are the seven. And uh, what the book's about, it's very practical, it's down to earth, it's very experiential. How can we use uh, what we're learning more and more about what's happening in the brain when we are rested in these ways of being in our minds to stimulate the underlying neural circuitry and thereby strengthen it over time? So increasingly, uh, we become Steady, loving, equanimous, and so forth.
2: May it be so. <laughs> uh,
1: exactly. That exactly. So there's a part of the book that's super aspirational. I mean, uh-huh. like, how oh, audacious, right? Like, yeah, come on, yeah. let's reverse engineer enlightenment on the mm-hmm. one hand, while for me, being very respectful of the mysteries mm-hmm. and the and also the possibilities. Why Why not go for it? And meanwhile, appreciate that in the time of corona, right, we're yeah, yeah. talking with each other, and you know these qualities that you see really developed in people very far along are so useful in the trenches of everyday life. So that's what that book's about. That's fantastic. I mean, it's
2: strange timing in a way to have a book released, but it's incredible timing, too, because it sounds so pertinent to what people are, yeah. are really yearning for now.
1: Yeah. I, I, I think that's true. Um, Just to play off of a little bit, something that I see you as having really developed. For myself, um, probably like many people, I'm grappling with how to manage outrage Mm -hmm. and feeling just stunned and appalled at many people. Um, Mm -hmm. And how to both um, integrate the... Usefulness and the authenticity, let's say, of a moral view and a moral feeling Mm -hmm. um, and and the ways in which that organizes energy and and is useful Mm -hmm. without hatred. Yeah. Poisoning the heart. Yeah, exactly right. So I look at people like you, and then I reverse engineer. I look to people like the Dalai Lama, Thich Nhat Hanh, Pema Chodron, people really, very really far along in practice. And then I kind of go, all right. It's like I've studied rock climbers. I've been a rock climber a long time. I watch people better than me, and I'd go, well, how do you do that? And then I kind of try to embody it myself, you know, kind of channel them. So I'm channeling Sharon Salzberg's now oh my God. when I watch the evening news for <laughs> <laughs> <Dear laughs> at least some qualities of yours.
2: Well, I mean, you know, one of the, I think, outstanding um, elements of looking at somebody like the Dalai Lama or Thich Nhat Hanh is that they have really suffered. Mm. You know, in uh, loving kindness Mm. teaching, when we get to the difficult person, the word they would tend to use in a place like Burma is "enemy." Yeah, and you think, if I ever really had an enemy, have I been in a war? Have I, you know, and and yet, of course, we feel enmity and we feel all the fear. Mm-hmm. companies that stayed anyway but that's part of why they're so impressive you know it's mm-hmm. because they've been at it and <laughs> in some really tough circumstances Yeah. and here we are I mean I think it's extraordinarily difficult and um for so many people now clearly and in different ways too you know the people who are home all alone the people who are with people that Uh, where it's not so comfortable and then the people who are in frankly abusive situations and they're stuck at home and the people who can't be home because they're working and um, you know people who are ill and people who are taking care of people who are ill and it's just like what a time and uh, I know that you've really centered a lot of interest of yours on resilience Mm -hmm. which is really the name of the game you know I think one of the things somebody sent me a link to a disaster specialist. I didn't know there was such a thing, but apparently it was hmm. a field, you know? And, uh, and one of the things they were very interesting, actually, the article, but one of the things they said that was very funny was uh, no one is going to get an A plus in, in pandemic survival, you know? So we judge ourselves so harshly and, hmm. and be so down on ourselves, but a our resilience comes from something else altogether.
1: I think of resilience as, um, to tell a personal story, uh, in my dad's last months, he lived a very long and rich life, passed away about five years ago. And in his last four to six months, um, he suffered some strokes and his um, health uh, was very complicated. And there were a lot of issues with the uh, medical system that he was part of, um, as well as, as often happens, (laughs) when the last parent dies there are a lot of complications in the mm-hmm. in the extended family and so i would routinely literally need to you know as i drove home from the hospital every day an hour and a quarter each way and i would debrief with my wife most of that drive in like one crazy thing after another i started to feel and imagine myself as being like kelp on mm-hmm. the surface of the sea you know these these long plants very fluid very flexible through which waves and waves would pass and you know the kelp would be agitated by it and yet the waves would pass through and the kelp would remain and more and more i tried to imagine my mind and feel my mind in that way my being in that way as like kelp you know Mm -hmm. very receptively open no resistance because if you resist you get overwhelmed but but still you're, you don't identify with the wave, right? You let it flow through you uh, and there you remain. And to me, that's the essence of resilience. So it's kind mm-hmm. of like, cause I'm a psychologist and I'm, I'm a methods guy, I'm a practice oriented person. How do we grow those, those fibers in our being, much mm-hmm. as the kelp has those fibers that allow us to receive the world with a heart that's wide open while having the resilience to be not overwhelmed by it. And that goes to the cultivation of inner resources of different kinds, grit, compassion, self-worth, sense of meaning, uh, felt sense of love, being loved by and loving and so mm-hmm. forth. Um, so, and, and we need resilience too, not just for when it's really horrible, mm-hmm. but for every day of our lives. And lately I've, I've had this sort of observation that a lot of us, you know, some, to some extent myself, have been propped up, by our activities and settings Mm -hmm. and interactions and the experiences, the passing states that come when the music's playing and the sun is shining. But now when the storm comes and the bottom falls out, you're left with whatever you've cultivated inside. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you look and wow, that cupboard's a little bare, right? Mm -hmm. And so to me, one of the takeaways of this time is the importance of cultivation of durable, Traits inside, mm-hmm. grounded in changes in the brain fundamentally. Uh, and then, you know, the general process of that going forward.
2: So there was one time um, when ludicrously enough, I was interviewed for Good Housekeeping Magazine. And mm. of course, no one can see <laughs> anything in my house right now. Um, <laughs> but, uh, and whatever I had to say didn't make it into the interview anyway. But the topic was something like, how might mindfulness be useful in a time of complete crisis? Mm -hmm. And my response was, I wouldn't wait, you know?
1: Yeah, exactly.
2: I wait. Mm. You know, it's ordinary day by day exercises every day that really strengthen us. But, of course, a lot of people do wait. And even so, I think something supportive and really very useful can come out of taking on a practice. It's just, it's like, harder you know like Mm. we're so beset with anxiety and sadness and so many things going on it's not impossible by any means I think it could be really useful but I feel grateful for the many years you know like Mm -hmm. just day by day uh, putting some time in
1: Mm. can I ask you a question so if you um, see something on the news or you hear something that outrages you let's say or Yeah. yeah Do you mind saying kind of how you practice with that? No, no, I'm, I'm
2: happy to. I was, I was thinking about that. Um, I feel sickened, really. I don't actually watch the news at all anymore, mm-hmm. but I read it on Twitter like constantly. So yeah, I feel really sick. You know, to think that people are going to be allowed to go hungry or, mm. um, you know, the the kind of racial hatred or were the ascribing of blame and the stigma of, you know, being afraid or being sick. And I mean, it's it just, uh, it's awful in the way that people can treat other people. It just blows my mind. The other side of that, of course, is, is the beauty, you know, in mm. every day where someone reaches out to somebody else or reaches out to me to know if I'm okay or um, is generous in some way, whatever they, they can manage. And, um, you know, so that's very uplifting, but I do, I feel, I feel sick and angry and all of that. But one of the things I really feel I've seen in my own practice and in teaching so many is that right at the core of a lot of anger, um, is a sense of helplessness. Hmm. And in Tibetan Buddhism, they say that, they say anger is that which we pick up when we feel weak because we think it's going to make us strong. Of course, Mm. it does give us strength in the sense of energy, but it can be so self-destructive that in some ways our practice is extracting that energy and that determination and so on, but not align it with the burning and the overwhelm. and, um, And so... I know that from hours of looking at my feelings Mm -hmm. that if I can get to recognize that place of helplessness, then clearly I have to exercise some agency. You know, it's calling a friend or it's uh, trying to make a difference or having a commitment. You know, my my biggest political commitment probably is in voter registration, for example. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so... I know that's a much more useful outlet than, than just feeling forsaken and, and horrible. I'll also say that I also know from so much experience that I need to forgive myself for whatever I'm feeling, Mm -hmm. that feeling something like anger or outrage is very different than being completely overwhelmed by it, making choices because of it. Um, maybe creating harm because of it. And I try to come back to that understanding that the more I am distressed myself or ashamed of what I'm feeling, the harder it's going to be because it just intensifies it. You know, and it's easy for me. I could say I've been meditating for almost 50 years. Why in the world am I still reacting this way? And, you know, I should be calm and cool. And, uh, it's Mm -hmm. not always the case. So, that's basically it, and a lot of what I find myself urging people now, even people brand new to practice, is is to use it in a way to be able to hold their feelings differently, hmm. because it's not easy, and and they are very complex and hard to bear. But we have to, you know, that, that's the only way through.
1: Wow! Thank yeah, you.
2: That's a yeah. Big answer. I have a question for you. Um, one of the things I've learned from you is about savoring joy. Mm. And uh, it's in, in the midst of, you know, so much chaos and disruption and fear and difficulty. Like how do you suggest people do that? Do you suggest people do that?
1: Mm. Uh well, I I do very simply uh, if whatever it is we want to grow inside ourselves, uh, resilience, love, gratitude, happiness, wisdom, is a simple two stage process that's really grounded in how the brain changes for the better. Uh, the first is we must experience whatever we want to cultivate. So we experience mindfulness, we experience letting go, we experience patience, and then second we really need to help that experience sink in. Otherwise, it's a passing state, but does not become a lasting trait. Experiencing does not equal learning. And that's the dirty little secret of psychotherapy, um, coaching, and frankly, a lot of mindfulness and self-compassion and compassion training. People have experiences while they're doing something, but the emotional residues don't really land inside, leading literally to an embodied change of neural structure and function. That's real. And meanwhile, due to the brain's negativity bias, which makes it like Velcro for bad experiences, but Teflon for good ones, the, the sense of, let's say, helplessness or mm-hmm. outrage or um, hurt or weakness gets internalized very rapidly it's reinforced really quickly. So, to me, that's the fundamental frame. And uh, anything I might say about the value of sort of appreciating the good is in really the frame for me of of kind of a hard headed, clear eyed understanding of of how the process of cultivation actually proceeds. Mm -hmm. And the fact that for many people much of the time, it doesn't proceed. The actual growth curve is flat. Uh, So, If we want to help our brains internalize the experiences we're having, there are multiple things we can do. And as you know, I I have a whole shtick about that, you know, a lot of stuff about it. But the essence is really simple. Feel it for a breath or longer. As you put Uh it, savor it. Although the word savoring, you can't really use for a number of qualities we want to grow. I mean, it would be a reach or a stretch to say I'm savoring healthy remorse Mm and recognizing you know, how I've harmed another person. Uh, In any case, we we stay with it for a breath or longer. Keep those neurons firing together so they wire together, as the saying has it. Feel it in the body. The more embodied the experience is, the more it's going to land. And also focus on what's rewarding about it, which technically increases activity of dopamine and norepinephrine in the brain, which flags the experience as a keeper and protects it as it gradually gets consolidated into long-term storage. So that's, that's a bit of a frame. I, I gave you a bit of a long answer because I think it's important, especially uh, in a mindfulness framework, to understand the why that it's useful uh, not only to practice choiceless awareness, you know, radically mm-hmm. um, present um, being with what we're experiencing, but also why from time to time it's really important and useful to kind of turn on the inner recorder, mm-hmm. not out of craving. Actually, it's the opposite of it because as we fill ourselves up from the inside out and we satisfy the lungs and inner heart really experientially in a vulnerable, humble, and intimate way, and we receive it into ourselves, well, we become increasingly unconditionally full and we stop you know, reaching for it from the outside. So that's general. And you bet. Uh, these days, more important than ever, uh, for example, gratitude mm-hmm. makes us resilient. Uh, amidst all the losses to see what endures what can actually never be lost, although it can be found in terms of our own deep nature, and then also just looking around like right now, you know in, <laughs> in the room i'm in i'm I'm seeing my my cell phone and I'm seeing the the numbers four three four because it's four thirty four and the the green is beautiful, I mm. like the color of the letters uh i feel enormously grateful to you, Sharon, and mm. it's such a pleasure to be with you here. That's real, right? Or yeah. I'm looking at a piece of paper, and it works, you know, my yellow pad, and I've written things on it, and paper, thank you, trees, thank you, mm. people who've figured out how to make paper, and thank you, universe, that you know has atoms in it, heavier than helium, born inside exploding stars, wow, becoming paper and oxygen and calcium and the gold in my wedding ring. It's The more we appreciate gratitude, just for example, those, it helps us get through really hard times. Mm-hmm. What do you make of all that?
2: I think it's fantastic, and it's so um, interesting. I mean, I, I really, uh, it, it doesn't necessarily come naturally on any level to think, well, let me say, I don't know, let me cherish, let me
1: uh.
2: you know, stay with the state because it sounds selfish or self-absorbed or, Um, something like that. But of course it's not because if we don't have some sense of inner resource, we can't meet suffering in any way. And so um, it seems critical to really just keep cultivating it. And that disaster specialist article (laughs) that I was Mm -hmm. reading that I was sent, he talked a lot about gratitude, which Mm -hmm. was just fascinating. And I think there's recently been some studies on gratitude reflections. You know, think of, let's say, three things yeah a day you have to be grateful for, and because the um I think the common or conventional view is that it makes you kind of stupid, you know like oh, exactly happy yeah. for crumbs, you know, and like never standing up for yourself and but i I gather the research, which I haven't really looked at but just know it exists, is really showing the opposite
1: yeah it, um a couple of things there um for one, it's really important not just to have ideas. Of what we are grateful for, um, like listing three blessings or things like mm-hmm. that, but to really marinate in it and to feel it. Um, second, uh, it's really weird to me. It's like a double standard, right? So if um, if you said to me, hey, Rick, uh, uh, you know, look at this beautiful sunset. And I said, oh, no, I, sunset's not for me. You say, no, you're my friend, Rick. Why not why not recognize the sunset, or why not recognize that you actually are an okay guy? You know you're even maybe a good guy, you know, actually, amidst you know your foibles and flaws. Uh, and y- you would want me to slow down to actually feel that and over time internalize it. And it's weird, though, we don't do that for ourselves. Mm-hmm. And to me, there is this very strange cultural attitude, which I, I think of as frankly, Deeply shallow and misguided, honestly, Mm -hmm. that pushes away ordinary, wholesome, beneficial experiences and um, denies their value in the face of A, tons of research, B, ordinary common sense experience. You know, as people, Barbara Fredrickson, for example, Mm -hmm. has done a lot of research on positive emotions of all kinds, uh, including. Love and secure attachment and gratitude and uh, a sense of beauty or awe. And there's so much research that shows that emotionally positive experiences uh, and the um, cultivation of emotionally positive traits, the cultivation of trait positive mood, trait self-worth, trait um, feeling of um, gratitude, let's say, that the cultivation of that makes people tougher makes them less like a chump, makes them less willing to be pushed around by jerks. It makes them more um, capable of healthy entitlement, of feeling like their needs really matter too here, just as much as anyone else's do. Um, Yeah. And I I just think that uh, even in, you know, in our shared contemplative tradition, Buddhism, Mm -hmm. it's very interesting the ways in which If you think of seven factors of awakening, as you well know, um, you could argue that the majority of them involve emotionally positive experiences, Mm -hmm. tranquility, bliss, concentration, even equanimity uh, is not just numb, it's kind of saturated with a sense of well-being. Uh, Happiness is skillful means.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: How's that for a heresy?
2: That's a pretty good list. (laughs) (laughs) The seven factors of enlightenment. Yeah. Well that is also interesting because um something I also say is that from the beginning of my acquaintance with Buddhism I was fascinated by the idea that suffering is not redemptive. You know like suffering itself is not the point because everybody Were you suffers. raised Christian? Jewish, very Jewish.
1: So in that in the Jewish tradition is there a sense of suffering as redemptive? I mean you I, definitely have that in a lot of Christianity.
2: Yeah, no yeah I, I mean I think that it's everywhere. There's just some mm. sense of it's ennobling in mm. in and of itself, and yeah, and there was the Buddha saying, "Well, not quite." You know, like mm-hmm. it may be inevitable, but everything depends on how you relate to it. And certainly, yeah. life shows us plenty of people who suffer and are bitter, yeah, and um, isolated, and blaming, and and yet there are also people who suffer sometimes a considerable amount more by external standards. And mm-hmm. you think, look at that. You know, look at that quality of compassion, no one left out. Look
1: at I think people who are kind of like professional Grinches, yeah, uh, raining on the parade. <laughs> Other yeah. people, if you're smiling, you, you're a stupid, you know what I mean? Yeah, like right. that. I think they're afraid, yeah, actually, they're afraid of the vulnerability that comes when we soften to receive uh, well being, basically. And I think of you know, the Brahma Viharas uh, here, we, they don't just stop with compassion. May you not suffer, right? May you not be underwater. But there's also kindness. May you be happy. And also Mudita, yeah. of course, as you know, you right, finding happiness in the happiness of others. Uh, well, gosh, if we wish for them to be happy or, and if we delight in their happiness, why is it suddenly some kind of taboo about opening to wholesome causes and conditions that support ongoing well-being.
2: Was there a moment in your life, like an actual experience, where mm-hmm. you just got turned on to neuroscience? And huh. you thought, oh, this is the way to to unpack all of this?
1: Wow. Well, uh, I started meditating in 1974, mm-hmm. and uh, I was motivated both by curiosity and suffering, mm-hmm. probably more the latter. And, uh, it was clear to me that, other than what is ultimately unconditioned, everything else is being constructed by the enchanted loom Charles sherrington called it that mm-hmm. the brain in you know three pounds of tofu like tissue inside the coconut <laughs> right and, and so it was, but they didn't. we didn 't know enough you know it was clear that obviously our experiences and our you know, our 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 pain and our joy, our pathology and our and our healing were, you know, that the brain was deeply involved with that. But there wasn't that much knowledge. It was really mm-hmm. starting around 20 years ago when I think there was kind of a critical mass. Mm-hmm. And you have early researchers like, gosh, uh, Daniel Goleman, known for emotional intelligence, I looked up some of his stuff or some of the early papers in the 1971 say has his name on him mm-hmm. as he was researching at mm-hmm. TM. With EEG, so when that research started, um, I am really interested in it intellectually, but I'm mainly interested in it experientially. And how can we kind of move back and forth by between back and forth between what we're experiencing in the moment, and then an appreciation objectively of what the hardware is doing, what the the body is doing. You know, we can be mindful of the body some of the time. We are actually body full of mind all of the time, Mm -hmm. right? And you can go back and forth. And in a weird kind of way, you can know yourself more intimately. And also, for me at least, it's really supported disenchantment, really, to Mm -hmm. realize that. My precious experience right now is being fabricated, (laughs) conditioned, you know, by uh, a whole bunch of gooey neurochemical processes Mm -hmm. and the activations of billions. We have several hundred hundred trillion synapses inside our noggin. Yeah. And they're all sparkling away and doing all kinds of weird stuff shaped by evolution, you know, like stone age brain in the 21st century. I don't know. It it has led me to take it less seriously. Seriously, as to take my experiences mm-hmm. less seriously and be less caught up in clinging to them.
2: Wow, because you know it's um, well, of course, it is the language of our time as well, and and yeah. lends a kind of power and authenticity in the eyes of many. Yeah, to to these practices, and I think one thing it also points to is is well, you'd call it the embodied nature. Mm-hmm. Of our understandings and our insights and our realizations, and like everything in this culture, we can hold everything like as an abstraction. Yeah, and it's it's just that much more removed than yeah. than is reasonable. Yeah, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, because um, actually, quote you, and I'm not sure I quote you correctly, uh. <laughs> uh, about research into self compassion as being um, uh, a strong engine for change or for learning compared to, like, harshness and stress.
1: Oh, yeah. Actually, Kristen Naff and others have found that uh, people who are peak performers over the long haul um, usually have a... Uh, they're more motivated by self-guidance and mm-hmm. self-compassion than they are by self-criticism. And one reason for that is that uh, they're more willing to take risks uh, mm-hmm. and um, because they're not going to kill themselves. They're not going to beat themselves up horribly if they don't succeed at something. Uh, there's a lot of wear and tear. We take on a lot of excess damage when we are sort of pounding on ourselves along the way. On the other hand, if you have an internalized sense of I call it the caring committee. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, there's these sort of like beings or energies or voices inside. I, you're on my caring committee. And um. along with Gandalf and a few <laughs> rock climbing guides I've had, you know, and they're kind of tough-minded, but kind way, quit whining, Hanson, and start climbing, you know, kind of like that. <laughs> And, you know, again, you know, like I, all kinds of characters are there for me in my caring committee. Uh, the more we have that kind of internalized caring committee, uh, rather than this sort of harsh Kafka Kafkaesque, beating us up, mm-hmm. big figures, mmm, bad boy, bad girl, bad person, blah blah. You know, the more willing we are to to reach and and recover faster if we fail, if it doesn't mm-hmm. go well. Also, uh, the more we have positive emotion, we tend to widen our view, and people are more um, likely to use creative solutions to problems when they're happy than when they're anxious or angry. That's pretty cool. It's beautiful.
2: Because so many times, of course, if I teach about self-compassion in any way, somebody raises their hand and says, "Well, that's just laziness, you know that's yeah, it's not having high standards uh, for yourself, but of course it's and that's when I quote you, <laughs> and, uh, yeah. you know but isn't
1: it interesting, Sharon? like why do people I, I, it's a mystery to me, honestly, yeah. Yeah. why people go there, why, why they presume that if you're caring to yourself and supportive? Right, you, you're encouraging. I mean, you call yourself on your stuff. Let's say, um, I, I think of the value you find in the Dharma about the willingness to be admonishable, right? Yeah. To be in a healthy way, and that's a that's a character strength, actually, to, including to be self admonishable. Like, and I, I've had moments where I would just tell myself I was partying too hard, or I was. Um, you know, being egotistical with somebody and a jerk and I needed to clean it up or I, I was just being too intense with our kids when they were little and I didn't realize that for me, kind of a, a two or a three on the adult intensity scale was like for them a nine or a 10, you know, I was landing. Well, I think we have to be able to receive that. Sure. It doesn't mean that, um, okay, my point is, you know, why in the world do you think that people yeah. presume that if you're supportive and kind toward yourself, like they would say we we should be toward other people, do we think that if we're kind and supportive to other people, they're going to lose their edge and become a bunch mm-hmm. of slackers? No, they usually get brave enough and courageous enough themselves to really go for it. Well, why wouldn't that apply to ourselves? It's remarkable, isn't it? Well, it's like...
2: Uh maybe it's along the same trajectory of not really quite believing we too will die, you know? Mm. It's like hey, there's another abstraction, you know, we're so mm. disconnected from the reality of who we are and what we need, in fact, yeah. in order to be
1: happy that a lot of things seem kind of remote. <laughs> I've, I've uh, Maybe you and I should, I don't know, we talk about like dumb I, dumb ideas that have become Buddhist dogma or dumb ideas that have become sort of, cultural dogma and I think this is one of them that somehow if we're caring and mm-hmm. supportive and compassionate to ourselves yeah. we're going to become lazy selfish chumps
2: Yeah. Not absolutely. Yeah, not true let's work on that
1: let's dissolve that <laughs> for sure but I might not be good enough
2: you'll <laughs> <laughs> oh. be better than me <laughs> no, no. Yeah. oh my god <laughs> yeah it, it is good to laugh at one's own mind and yeah. sort of the nature of that stuff. Yeah. Um, so another, actually I have two more things that are in my mind simultaneously um, or seemingly simultaneously. We know that doesn't happen according to the Buddha. Um, just in terms of, uh, this is another research question. I had heard at one point uh, that interoception or that ability to perceive internal sensations Mm-hmm. in your body was an important, or at least a significant gateway to empathy. And that 100%. Made sense to me. And then I was with somebody else, and they said, no, no, that, that's that been refuted. I mean, that's the issue with science, too, is that as an author, it's like a nightmare. Like, if I quote that study, will you know the books can come out, and the next day there's going to be a big article in the newspaper. Like, study yeah. totally refuted. You
1: know? Well, that's interesting. I mean, I I I would say that I'm aware of research that showed uh, in a way that rings true Mm -hmm. that as we um, develop the capacity to tune into our internal body sensations Mm -hmm. and in fact tune into our kind of gut feelings and the somatic aspects of them, Mm -hmm. um, that as we do that, we actually uh, develop the capacity to be empathic for the feelings of others. I mean it I makes total I, sense to me. I mean it yeah.
2: seems so clear.
1: Yeah. And uh so maybe my state of knowledge about that it could be a potentially a few years out of date and and you know, studies progress and and you know, they kind of converge on on what rings true. But certainly what I was aware of um, at least a few years ago is that technically the part of the brain that's very involved with the interoception, the Mm -hmm. insula, um, actually can build up neural tissue. Sarah Lazar at Harvard, that was one of her major findings Mm -hmm. about mindfulness practice, especially more mindfulness of breathing, mindfulness of the body practices. People literally uh, thicken the cortical tissues Mm -hmm. in their insula, in part because they're working that muscle again and again of tuning into themselves. And then I've seen other... Research, I I quoted it, I guess, in Buddha's brain, so maybe it's a little old, but in in which as people increase uh, their interoceptive awareness and literally in proportion to the, uh, you know, thickening, as it were, neurologically Mm -hmm. of that part of the brain, they become more capable of being empathic toward others. And that certainly has been very true for me, you know, Mm -hmm. as a longtime therapist and longtime husband, 38 years. (laughs) uh, (laughs) <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah
2: yeah well i mean that does not have to say that those original studies which make complete sense to me are incorrect it's just that yeah. the complexity of science for a layperson, you know is that you don't actually quite know um unless you investigate what's the nature of the study what's the mm. you know what's the size of the group or it's just like it's so uh Amazing, and this this is an interesting reflection because I know you must really hunker down and do some scholarship to mm-hmm. to have a sense of what um, could be held up. And, you know, I, I, there have been a lot of studies, as far as I know, a fair number, showing that mindfulness practice will decrease unconscious bias, which also mm. makes total intuitive sense because mm. when we don't see our assumptions, how yeah. can we not? How can we, like, let go of them, you know, Mm -hmm. when we don't even see them? So that made sense. And then I read a study that said, well, that's not true. It it doesn't have any effect at all. And I just thought, that makes no sense. And then I read an investigation of that study, which said that the total length of the mindfulness practice was five minutes. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't like five minutes a day. It was total Mm -hmm. five minutes. And then, you know, so then people were writing, well, of course, you know, like, uh, it's not going to happen in five minutes. But, um, you know, unless you do that scholarship and you uh, you really take a deep dive in, into the nature of the studies, it's like you're just kind of left with pretty shifting terrain.
1: Yeah, I, that's, I'm that's. i glad you brought that up. I mean, there's so much about this, like science, the secular religion of our age, and also it. I reflect on this myself about pitfalls in bringing anything scientific into deep practice, uh, including careerism. Right? You know, you you want to sell. I've thought about running an experiment, a scientific experiment, in which basically car sales people, um, you know, do or do not wear a white lab coat while they're trying to sell cars. And I'm convinced that if they were wearing white lab coats without reference to it, uh, they would sell more cars. And especially if they draped a stethoscope around their neck. Yeah. And so on the one hand, we got to really be careful about that. And so for myself, what's, what's useful is to use science, which is a baby science when it comes to the brain. It's a baby science. But to use it as a way that's suggestive or points us in a certain direction mm-hmm. or or suggests things that maybe not if we're not intuitively obvious, perhaps, and then when we try them out ourselves in the real laboratory of the n of one personal laboratory as practice, we go, "Oh, wow, that makes a difference I'll, I'll give you two little examples here, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, one is, and they're in the book, they relate to the practices of wholeness and allness. All right. So wholeness, people could do it if they're listening. If you get a sense of, your, of anything as a whole, for example, your body as a whole or the room as a whole, if it's uncomfortable to be aware of the body. So you're, you're aware of breathing, let's say, on the left side of your chest, and then the sensations on the right side of your chest. And then left and right together, left and right as a whole. And then you, you even go further to get more and more of a sense of your body as a whole with all these sensations in it, but as a single unified gestalt, which is kind of in, entering into broadly ekagata, ultimately the sense of unification or singleness of mind. But, you know, just at the entry level, you know, the beginning level, sense of body as a whole. Boom. You start to feel different and uh, less caught up in inner conflict. Parts struggling with parts. You feel more like a whole. You relax. There's less sense of selfing, me, 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 right there. And neurologically, this is suggested by work that makes the distinction between activity in the midline of the cortex on the top of the head, which is kind of what gets active when we're in the default mode and We're spacing out or caught up in negative rumination. But on the other hand, when we move more into the sense of things as a whole, we activate networks on the side of the brain, mainly the right side for right-handed people, because that's the hemisphere that does holistic, gestalt, whole processing, and also is very involved in body awareness too. The right hemisphere, you know, it's kind of a little more specialized for that. So when we drop into the sense of our body as a whole. Oof. we quiet that midline area, quiet activity in the default mode, move more into the present moment, less mental time travel, less sense of self, just by taking half a minute to get that sense of the body as a whole. And maybe over time, as I do my own practice, kind of draw on that as a cultivation so it's easier to drop into it. But that's an example you know, and um, I stumbled on that just reading the research on these sort of midline compared to lateral networks in the brain and then reverse engineering. All right, what are the kinds of things that help us activate the right hemisphere of the brain and, um, you know, the sense of things as a whole and, you know, tuning into your body as a whole is one of them. Now, I didn't invent tuning into your body as a whole. A lot of people do that anyway, right? In Yoga, qigong or body awareness of different kinds, but to really appreciate how useful it is to get that sense of the whole. So that, for me, is an example of, you know, coming across something that's suggestive in the research and then really exploring it as a personal practice.
2: It's beautiful. Thank you.
1: Here's another one really that. fast is to look out, yeah,
2: yes. is Go to ahead. move your
1: gaze out to the horizon. Right there. If you keep your gaze close to your body, it increases what's called the egocentric perceptual frame, what's it got to do with me, friend or foe, On the other hand, if you move your gaze out 10 feet or toward the horizon, you'll notice a shift in your consciousness, partly because that movement of the gaze outward engages this other perceptual processing frame, especially visual, that's called allocentric, which just means taking things impersonally as a whole. Not privileging any particular perspective, and there too. you know you're in this cranky conversation with someone, just look out the look out the window, not to avoid them, but or just let your gaze soften so you have a sense of receiving the whole field, especially sort of starting ten or twenty feet out from you and then maybe straight out to the horizon. You'll just notice your consciousness shifting. And that, too, is something we can cultivate, that sense of things as a whole, uh, which is really useful, you know, uh, in general, becoming one with everything. And it's also incredibly useful in everyday life to just see how this moment of the pandemic is part of a very large, whole, vast process. Hmm.
2: It's really wonderful. Um, Truly. And I have Mm. one last question and then I'm going to ask you if you would lead us in a a meditation practice. Well, you kind of just did actually a few of them, but um, one of the things clearly that people are experiencing a lot is loneliness and they seem Mm -hmm. to have been for some time. And uh, there is uh, often a claim that there's like an epidemic of loneliness in, well, actually around the world in different places in the world and, and for me, it's like I've been teaching so much in this this current time. And a lot of what I talk about is connection. And And I say, I know it looks strange, but if you meditate, which looks like a completely solitary activity, you actually get a much deeper sense of connection, not only to mm-hmm. yourself, but to others. And I wondered if you could just say something about that.
1: Mm. Um, I, well, Dan Siegel talks about that really well, that, you know, he uses the terms you know, mind sight, that there's kind of a parallel process of tuning into ourselves and then tuning into others. Uh, I think that, I'm a you know, child psychologist, and one of the deepest ways we feel okay is we feel known. And that begins with the caregiver and the caregiver's gaze and responsiveness and emotional availability. So beginning literally in infancy, it's critically important to feel known by your caregivers and infants in these you know, terrible orphanage-type environments um, who don't feel at all responded to or known, received uh, in an appropriate way by caregivers they get really damaged um, in very early childhood when the foundations are being laid in the the house of of the being and the foundations can be kind of crooked. So I think that one thing that happens is that when we know ourselves which is more of a capacity that starts coming online uh, as we, you know, move through our third and fourth and fifth birthdays and then really, really can develop further in adulthood, I suspect that there's a parallel process uh, in knowing ourselves that's, right, there's no study on this that I know, but that the circuitry, as it were, that's involved in feeling known by others Mm -hmm. is also engaged. When we give ourselves the gift of, of really accepting and opening into and, and allowing, you know, our, our whole being, I, I suspect. And also I suspect, too, that um, we become softer as we mm-hmm. give ourselves that self-knowing. Um, I could feel it just talking about it here. And in that softness, there's more of a receptivity to others, which would tend to help us have more of a sense of connection with others. And if I could just, if it's okay, I'll say this one more thing. Being able to, yeah, being able to call up the felt sense, Antonio Damasio coined this term somatic marker, I mean, kind of broadly, the felt sense in the body. Felt sense, I think, is from Eugene Gendlin and focusing, but it's this felt sense in the body of being cared about, Right. If children don't have opportunities to internalize that felt sense of the of the good enough parent, you know, not perfect but "quote unquote" good enough, um, if if we don't internalize that, and for me it was the thin soup as a kid, uh, so I've had to work a lot on in adulthood um, internalizing healthy social supplies um, to gradually fill that really huge hole in my own heart um, over time. Whether we do it, you know rehabilitatively in adulthood or whether we we had the kind of childhood my wife had, you know, she she doesn't understand neurotic people like me, you know, because she had a really good childhood. Anyway, uh, you know, we internalized the felt sense of our caring committee, of those who love us, of those who, as Mr. Rogers put it in his Emmy Award talk, people who loved us into being. And being able to access The felt sense of of having friends and and being befriended, the emotional memory of that is really important. It's really important. It's more important at this time than ever. And if we don't have that strong sense, we can still grow it. We can look for every little opportunity in which we actually are connected in a healthy way with someone else one way or another, seen, appreciated, liked, even loved, and then really slow it down and turn on the inner recorder because that's gold. That's the nutrient that you're hungry for, to really take it in. Also, pull up the memory of the felt sense of being cared about. Uh, of, and even if it's useful for you, imagine it, right? You, you, you're not, you know that it's not true, but you're imagining perhaps an angel or a teacher or the, the divine or nature, the feeling, feeling loved in some way by nature. You know, that's an opportunity for us to, to feel this and then develop the trait of feeling cared about that we can then access.
2: Wow. Thank you. I think you've just helped a lot of people, really, seriously. Um, and I, I wonder if you would like to lead us into practice from your book.
1: Oh, thank you. I'll keep it really short, and I do want to say one little thing about science. Um, There's a saying that a truly scientific attitude recognizes that the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Mm -hmm. And I think about what's appropriate in a scientific framework, you know, career academics, the research community, what's appropriate? What's the level of evidence that's appropriately Mm -hmm. necessary to make a truth claim in the province of science? And the appropriateness for pe- for people to, in a word, police truth claims in the field of science. Mm-hmm. And and science proceeds through doubt and dispute in a lot of ways. What's left standing yeah. after? Yeah, that's appropriate. Uh, on the other hand, in in the domain of clinical practice or education or self-help, when particularly with mental interventions of various kinds, the risks are very low. I mean, the risks for someone, let's say, developing interoception and failing to become more empathic for the emotions of others, well, that's kind of a low risk. You know, they they did, they meditated, they tuned into their body, and they did not become more empathic, Mm -hmm. maybe for other reasons as well. Okay, that's really different than, for example, in medicine, Uh, which is the third leading cause of death in America, medical error. Mm -hmm. You know, those tools, and I I respect medicine enormously now more than ever, those tools are very powerful Mm -hmm. because they're very powerful. They're often very risky. So the level of evidence for them needs to be higher. But in the general domain that you and I are in, if there's a study that's published in a peer-reviewed journal that was done reasonably well and suggests some interesting things that are low risk for people... To, uh, to try, and uh-huh. then in their own experience, see if they help, maybe. Um, I think that's perfectly fine. And I think sometimes what people do, unfortunately, who are used to policing truth claims in the scientific world, they bring that same criticism and skepticism and frankly, into domains that they don't have expertise in. They don't, mm-hmm. They're not therapists. They're not mindfulness teachers, really. They don't live in that world. And, and it's inappropriate for them to transfer into our domains, in a sense, you know, what would be appropriate in theirs.
2: Well, I just know what a tricky world it is. So I really appreciate your level of scholarship. And I don't know yeah. what else to call it, you know, care in being able to present what will actually be very reassuring to people. Um, in, in terms of of that way of describing the results of, yeah. of uh, changing your attitude, changing your view, and so on. Yeah.
1: Well, Thank you. I, I would say to myself, I don't represent myself as a scientist. I'm a therapist. Yeah. I'm a clinician. I'm a teacher. I, uh, that, I honor that. I try to be scholarly. Mm-hmm. I don't know if, if I'm a scholar. But um, anyway, well, thank you for saying that. So, you want a little meditation? Yes, please. All right, all right. Wow. Mm-hmm. wow. So much. Um, I'll tell you what I've been meditating myself with uh, uh, is the feeling of a kind of heartfelt peacefulness. It's taking that in effect as the object of meditation. You know, moving from let's say the sensations of breathing to the feeling of a of a calm that has heart woven into it. So I'll offer a few suggestions, and I'll, I'll practice here with you for about five minutes or so. Okay, so just suggestions for people. Feel free to adapt them. Uh, finding a posture that helps you feel both comfortable and alert, with your eyes open or closed. sitting, standing, walking, or lying down to begin. I'm doing this practice lately. I call it three breaths. It'll take a little more than three breaths for me to describe it. In the first breath, being aware of your body as you breathe and being aware of your, your ta- torso, your chest as a whole, as you take the first breath. And then in the second breath, going at your own pace, having being aware of breathing while also bringing to mind someone you care about. And keeping it simple, you might want to put a hand on your heart, the feeling of caring, you know, liking, appreciating, even loving someone else, perhaps multiple beings, as you feel breathing in your chest and in the area of the heart. That's the second breath. And then in the third breath, as you feel breathing in your torso, maybe centered in the heart, bring to mind someone who cares about you, keeping it simple, just the feeling of being with someone who cares about you, who likes you, and your friend, maybe a group of people, could be your dog, could be a, a benefactor, a teacher, or someone who cares about you while you feel breathing in your chest. So that's the three breaths practice. And if it takes more than three breaths, or if you want to take more than three breaths to move through it, that's perfectly fine. Uh, It's striking to me that just three breaths can actually make quite a difference. And then, on this foundation, I'll be quiet for some moments here as you allow yourself to to ease, maybe take some long exhalations. That will help to slow the heart rate. Letting go of tension in the body and calming There can be a sense of finding some peacefulness, not based on pushing anything away, maybe the peacefulness underneath it all, or perhaps a sense of calm strength. a growing tranquility in the body, calming in the mind. And then in the last few minutes here, if you like, it's interesting to explore opening to gently a heartfeltness, a warm heartedness amidst the calming, amidst the peacefulness. It's like lovingness mingling with peacefulness. open-heartedness and calm. And in the last minute here, One aspect of warmheartedness could be good wishes for others rippling out from you. There can be a sense of, of resting in peacefulness while compassion and kindness spreads out from you in all directions, omitting none. Okay, and then finishing up, the last couple breaths here. Maybe a sense of coming home, being at home, at home in yourself. okay that was the meditation
2: well thank you so much it was great
1: well thank you and of course as you well know it's fine to keep being meditative as we come out of a meditation yeah
2: yeah Yeah. thank you so much for joining me and um and thank you all for for joining us together and to learn more about Rick's work, you can visit his website, which is www.rickhanson.net. So that's dot N.net. And I highly recommend getting yourself a copy of his new book, Neurodharma, which is a great title, which is available in hardcover, ebook, and audiobook in all the places that books are sold. Thank you so much for listening. This has been the Meta Hour podcast from the Be Here Now Network. May you be safe, may you be healthy, may you be happy, and may you live with ease.
0: Hey folks, thanks for listening. To learn more about Sharon and her ongoing teaching schedule, as well as online courses and a free guided meditation, check out her website at sharonsalzberg.com.